This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Now, as we come to the end of this series on building strong communities, I wanted to revisit one of the most impactful conversations that I had from last season. Now, last year, you may remember that I released an 11-episode series of expert panels focused on various aspects of regenerative agriculture. Then the final panel session, I recorded a discussion with Alan Savory, Anna Digon, and Rudolf Bueller, all of whom have been the catalyst for the creation of community for growers and land stewards around the world. Since this is the aspect of my work that I spend the most time on, and because the insights in this conversation have been so formative in the way that I approach my work with climate farmers and the European agriculture community, I wanted to revisit this discussion and include it in a series on community building. So I hope you enjoy. I'll hand things over now to my past self. Now, each month I've been hosting discussions and debates between some of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture, soil science, restoration, land management, and more. In this session, I hosted a discussion on building community in agriculture with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers, a nonprofit organization working to build the infrastructure to scale regenerative agriculture in Europe. Now, in my work as the community coordinator with Climate Farmers, I've heard from so many of the people in our network that they say they feel lonely or isolated in their work and in their own communities. Despite the work of many organizations to bring together growers in various regions, many farmers still don't know where to turn for support and connection. Now for this panel, I was fortunate enough to be joined by three world-renowned teachers and farm community builders from Zimbabwe, Spain, and Germany to focus on the nuances and challenges of building agricultural communities from their own unique experiences. We'll hear from Alan Savory of the Savory Institute and International Holistic Management Network, Anna Digon from the Agricultura Regenerativa Network on the Iberian Peninsula, and Rudolf Bueller, leader of the farmers movement Besh and the initiator of the UN's Peasant Rights in Germany. In our talk today, we'll go into some of the key starting points in bringing farming communities together and what it takes to sustain them in the long term. We'll go from the importance of managing communities to alternative structures, important aspects of rural priorities, and a lot more. Now don't forget that if you want to hear the full unedited version of this interview with the entire Q&A session at the end, be sure to check out the different subscription options on the Regenerative Skills Patreon page. Now since these discussions are longer than the regular weekly episodes, and I give the more detailed descriptions of the participants in the beginning of the interview, I'll keep the intro short and jump right into the introductions for our panelists. And with that said, I will start with the introductions for our incredible panelists today, beginning with Anna Digon. So Anna is a freelance sociopolitical scientist, professional trainer, and interpreter, meeting facilitator, 
organizer of educational and social events, writer of various publications, and a committed communicator in areas regarding soil, the soul, and society. Her work as an interpreter and translator has allowed her to meet, work with, and learn from some of the greatest teachers and activists of our time, particularly in the area of regenerative agriculture and food systems, becoming also a co-organizer of training tours for some of these visionary leaders, as well as co-founder and coordinator for the last decade of the Regenerative Agriculture Association in Iberia, which is Spain and Portugal. Anna feels above all uh, part of the huge and amazing web of life that we are lucky to share and is passionate about transmitting that connection as well as specific practical tools so that we may co-create co the world that we want for our generation and future ones. And following her is Alan Savory, who is the founder and the president of the Savory Institute. He was born in Zimbabwe and educated in South Africa. He pursued an early career as a research biologist and game ranger in the, the British colonial service of what was then Northern Rhodesia of today's Zambia, and later as a farmer and game rancher in Zimbabwe. In 1992, Savory co-founded the nonprofit organization called the Africa Center for Holistic Management, donating a ranch that would serve as a learning site for the people all over Africa. The Africa Center became the first of the Savory Institute's locally led and managed hubs. His book, Holistic Management, a new framework for decision-making, describes his effort to find workable solutions ordin uh, for ordinary people who could implement and overcome many of the problems besetting communities and businesses today. His TED talk that he gave in 2013 has received over 8 million views. And in 2014, he was voted one of the 50 most intriguing TED talks of all time. The Savory Institute is one of 11 finalists of the Virgin Earth Challenge, a 25 million initiative for the successful commercialization of ways of taking greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and keeping them out with no contravailing impacts. And last but not least, we have Rudolf Bueller, who is a 14th generation organic farmer on his family farm of Sonnenhof in Germany, who after completing his degrees in agricultural science, spent six years in rural development projects in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. He later went on to pioneer local rare animal breeds, animal welfare standards, and eventually the Farmers Association of Schwabian Hall, a grassroots initiative and product project for rural development in his homeland. It's known as the oldest regional initiative and includes today more than 1,560 farms out of their region. In 1997, he founded the Organic Ecoland Association with regional development projects in Germany and international organic projects under the umbrella of Seeds of Hope in India, Serbia, Romania, Zanzibar, and others. And in 2012, he founded the House of Farmers Charity Foundation, whose aim was to develop a charter for farmers' rights which was leading in close cooperation with other international NGOs to the Declaration of Global Peasants' Rights, which resolved in December of 2018 in the General Assembly of the United Nations of New York. Okay, well, as you can see, we have some excellent speakers with us tonight, and I would like to start off this conversation focusing on building community in agriculture with the question that, what are some of the first steps in facilitating and organizing groups towards greater cooperation. Perhaps, Rudolf, you could start us off. Uh, yeah, thank you. That's a good question, I have to say. <clears throat> and um, of course, uh, I would say farmers uh, all over the world are quite uh, the same. 
you know, is a, let's say in, in a cultural approach and social approach, uh, I have learned uh, uh, during my international time that was in the 70s and 80s and lived even in, in Zambia. I was two and a half years in Zambia, Alan, and <laughs> uh, in, in close to Mazabuka area. And, uh, and then also in, um, in Syria and Arab countries and in East India, Bangladesh. So I have to say farmers can, uh, let's say, easily being motivated, you know, for new challenges and new developments. But uh, it is uh, also part of your question. And this is, I, I would say, this is the the main uh, obstacle or the main thing that we get them organized on a sustainable manner, you know, and on a long term. And, uh, well, this is a process uh, which is influenced by a lot of, uh, I would say, circumstances. Of course, first of all, I would say uh, farmers uh, recognize uh, almost best one of themselves as a leader, you know, less than outside persons, rather they are experts or whatever, uh, 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 they prefer, or let's say they have more trust and confidence to people who are, you know, socialized among themselves and know the culture and their culture and so, and so on. Uh, I think this is one important issue. And um, secondly is, uh, if it comes uh, from the idea into institutionalization, I would say, uh, that it should be a, a suitable framework, which fits actually uh, uh, to several points. You know, it has, first of all, uh, I believe we have uh, to set up and to focus always on uh, democratic uh, principles that, that means uh, one member, one vote, one vote is very important. Uh, one uh, equal uh, rights, you know, that each farmer, rather is a small or a large scale farmer, have the same rights, and uh, that's very important. And uh, then we need a, a legal framework. Actually, what I mentioned, rather cooperative or any other association or what else, uh, which fits to uh, the prevailing situation and also to the products which uh, need to be uh, uh, sourced and sailed on get into sale. And uh, so these are some basic issues. And uh, let's say after a few years of uh, trial and error, it should lead into a, into a stabilized uh, uh, group and, and structure. And at the end, farmers have to benefit out of it, you know, and then it, then it is a sustainable enterprise, you know, they have to benefit out of it uh, because, uh, you know, enthusiasm is quite nice and uh, a few years it, is, uh, it carries on, but on the long term, and I would say Farmers Association of Schwebischal, which I founded here in my home, region 88 
Uh, so it's 33 years now ago and with eight farmers, farming families. You mentioned that we have 1,560 now. Uh, this is a, a long go, I would say. And uh, finally, in the end, we look uh, uh, on, on our farmers. Actually, I'm the chairman since, uh, since the beginning, and uh, I am not uh, a manager. I'm just the elected chairman. That is very important. And uh, I would say the case is in, uh, that our farmers have the right to access markets. So they have a guarantee that we purchase all their products. They have a guarantee on prices. And on the other hand, they have to follow the standards and to accept the control measures. So this is the, let's say, both sides commitment. Uh, let's say the uh, um, standards are organic in most of the cases, eight, 480 are certified organic and others are to our private standards. And this is the both sides commitment. And so our farmers are benefiting uh, very well out of this scheme. And so that's, I think, is uh, the goal towards sustainability, you know, to have stable yeah, that's fantastic. You hit on a lot of really important things there that are fundamental to having these organizations work. I'm wondering, Alan, do you have some other insights on how to get these types of conversations started and where you like to begin in your experience facilitating and organizing groups towards greater cooperation? Well, when you, uh, I'm sort of uh, dreading this, when, when you uh, say, you know, with my experience, I know a hell of a lot of things not to do. I don't know many things what to do. Uh, the, we're dealing with something very complex here. Um, Rudolph is absolutely right. You know, the local leadership, etc., and, and that is why the Savory Institute with its more than 50 hubs now around the world, they are all locally led, locally managed, so that the management is entirely in that language, that culture, uh, local expertise, everything, and works to a local holistic context. So on that point, I, I think there's complete agreement. Um, when we say, uh, Rudolf says democratic, I, I put it, wrote that and I put a question mark here and, uh, and I thought, well, does that make any difference? Because mm. whether dictatorships or democracies, it doesn't make any difference. The end result is the same because they both make decisions exactly the same way. And the cause of the problem over thousands of years through all types of governments and organization has been consistently the same. Uh, humans damage the environment, their economy, and civilizations collapse. Now we're facing it globally. And so whether dictatorship or democracy doesn't seem to make a difference. Uh, and then, but what do we mean in democracy? Well, we're really wanting diverse views, not one person's view. And we're all saying we need to mimic nature. That's, that's coming out more and more. People are seeing that, and that's true. And when we look at nature, diversity is fundamental uh, in the environment, in uh, the synergy, in biological communities. Uh, when we look at economies that we're managing, 
diversity of economy, again, is an essential principle. But then when we look to human society, diversity of views, we find the opposite. We find the total chaos of centuries and of 26 COP meetings now with the world's experts and great diversity of views, and you see the opposite result. You see nothing, no clear leadership come out of it, no clear vision, nothing come out of it except chaos and confusion. So then I said, all right, so, so diversity is what we're wanting, but there's something going wrong there. And then when I, I think of this, and I think of what we're trying to do, and the, the short, very short talk I gave in that Regen Ag group at COP26, I, I did point out that the, the source of the problem we're all discussing and why we're here today is the things we manage, that, that's where it's going wrong. And almost every scientist in the world now is acknowledging indirectly that management is the problem, not livestock, not crops, not how we produce them or anything else. And I pointed out that, that in that, that we produce millions of things. We produce food in all the ways Rudolf and I, and I'm sure Anna and everybody in this listening to us is promoting and other people promote other ways of make, producing food, but we don't manage that, that we produce. If we stop producing it, it stops as it does if we stop producing electricity from nature or food from nature, everything we produce comes from nature. Um, so that's not where the problem lies. So it lies with what we manage and we only manage three things. We manage humans, ourselves, our families and our organizations. And then at large scale, which is what we're all needing to talk about, um, we only manage through institutions basically through governments, international agencies, um, organizations of one sort or another. And through those, we manage economies. And through those, we manage nature or the environment. And that's where all our food and everything comes from. So we manage these three things, but, but the three are managed through institutions. And that's where the complexity in that is causing diversity of opinion to become chaotic. So, so we need to be cognizant of those facts. And I, I'm not doomsday about it at all, because I think we've begun to understand how to deal with that but by realizing that the, the only three things humans manage cannot be managed independent of each other. And COVID should have taught us that now. A little virus has taught the whole world, if they didn't understand it before, that economy, human health, nature are totally tied together, absolutely indivisible. Well, if you're managing economy and nature through organizations, that's where the problem lies. And when we look at all three of the things we manage, they self-renewing, they, they don't stop if you stop producing, we don't, we don't produce them, we don't make them. Okay, when we look at that, and we look at the humans in institutions, we find that's where the problem lies. So, so if we can begin to focus on what producers or, what, or how to deal with what they call the wicked problems in complex human organizations, we might find a way to solve this. Uh, now, so that's not just a lot of words for everybody, let's bring it down to very simple and 
example uh, that I use that we can all understand. Uh, the, the founders of our great religions had a very simple message, love and caring. Okay? And millions, billions of humans are capable of doing that, using common sense, loving and caring. But the moment you form a human organization, it doesn't behave like a human. It takes on a life of its own and it's incapable of common sense. It defends itself, very seldom admits to error um, and goes right against its mission. So the moment we manage just our spiritual faith through organizations, that led to forming more than 1,600 branches of Christianity that have spent the last 300 years, is it? Killing, torturing, fighting, going to war against each other, protecting pedophile priests, not the children. You see, it. that's where it goes wrong. And that's where the diversity of opinion goes wrong. So again, then we can still overcome that if we just acknowledge these where it's going wrong, because one thing we're needing, and I think Anna Rudolph and I would, all of us would agree on this, is we're wanting something that unites us for good cause, not just for a short time, but for centuries. Like the War of the Roses, that united people for a hundred years, but it was a war. And it's always war that unites us. And as soon as the war is over, we go back to fighting and, and arguing and everything. So, so democracy or dictatorship or, or democracies and dictatorship can unite in war. But the moment it's over, they're back to fighting. Now, clearly, we don't want war to unite us. So what could unite us? And I think climate change could do it. And I wrote that when I wrote the first edition of our book. I said, the thing that might unite humans for a long time is now emerging, climate change. But it's not yet uniting us. At the moment, we're just going to these conferences and getting into, into chaos. And I think when it unites us, this new concept that drives the addressing the root cause of why agriculture is so destructive, and all forms of agriculture have been through centuries. Why that is, that root cause is, lies in that concept of a holistic context to guide all our management actions. And that is tremendously uniting. Uh, where I've worked with communities that have been totally at each other's throats and killing each other, literally within an hour, they've been able to unite around a common holistic context, not a vision, not a goal. A vision or a goal doesn't unite us for long, only for a short time. But that holistic context is capable of uniting us because it ties how we want our spiritual, our real, our material lives to be tied to our behavior, tied to our life-supporting environment that this where our food comes from centuries from now not in the condition it's in now but in the condition it will have to be in two three four hundred years from now for our descendants to be living a similar life so i think we've got a concept now that does unite us can unite us 
Now, how do we get that over to adults? Because the idea, the concept is too simple for most adults to understand. That's funny how that's a paradox, yeah. Yeah, that's where we are now, in my mind. Well, this is brilliant. We're really getting deep into these initial questions. I love it. Anna, can you weigh in on this from your experience? What are some of the first steps in facilitating and organizing groups towards greater cooperation? Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. And thank you to Rudolf and Alan for everything you've just said, because it's so rich and full of, of message and of experience. And um, the idea you were saying, Alan, about unity, you know, the unity that we need as, as a species and as a living <laughs> reality on this planet, with this planet, you no, know, we need that unity. And it's such a massive challenge. How do we bring people together? And those common aims uh, that can come from common challenges are something that are right now an opportunity to bring us together. And in my experience, it needs, it requires generous cooperation on the part of everyone. And for that, I really feel that and, and, and I live this as well, is what I've been seeing, is that it requires a profound inner transformation in people. Because if we continue to come from the paradigm that we have been educating it into about competing for resources and competing to be the best one and the first one to get there and the one that does the most and the one that earns the most, that's the old paradigm. And the new paradigm has to be about sharing and cooperation. So we need to retrain ourselves into that. We were all of us here born into a society that was promoting competition. And so we need to re-educate ourselves into cooperation and that requires profound inner change. So for me, that's a key element in the shift in paradigm. And from my own personal experience is where I can share from, um, I was very lucky that in 2007, I was hired to interpret Darren Doherty when he first started coming to Spain to train in regenerative agriculture, which at the time wasn't even coined in that way, but that's what it was. It was permaculture for professionals, basically. And um, so that for the people who came to the courses, it was like an absolute eye opener. It was just a, an absolute shift within them. And then they would go home and go, oh, well, where do I start? How do I apply this? Uh, you know, no one around me understands what I'm talking about. It's difficult to convey. Um, you know, I'm the crazy person around here and I don't even know where to start, really. So after a few years of these kinds of trainings, Mm, I realized, well, we need a network of people. Pe people need to be supported. They cannot go home and be on their own. And so I was very fortunate as well that at the same time as I came across, came, you know, as, as regenerative agriculture sort of took me over, I was also interpreting for people who are leaders in the world of facilitation and let's say um, group organization, inner work, and we could call it deep ecology. And so it just went click. It was like, okay, we need to change the way we relate to the soil and the land and how we grow food. But we also need to change the way we relate to ourselves, first of all. 
the inner dialogue that I have with myself. What am I telling myself? How am I relating to others? How do I enter a group? What energy do I bring in? What expectations do I bring in? What abilities am I offering? What am I expecting to get back? And all of this, you know, I, for me, it was like, okay, we need to bring those two things together. If there's going to be a paradigm shift, it has to be inner, collective, and then come the methodologies and the practices. And so uh, in the courses that uh, over the next time, firstly, when you were saying, what are the steps that we can take? For me, initially, back in those days when when there was no material about all of this in Spanish or practically none, um, I started giving talks, you know, based on Darren's material, translating that and giving talks to anyone who would listen, you know, a council, a group of neighbors, a group of farmers, uh, a scientific institution, whatever. I just gave talks everywhere and started collecting names and, and contacts of people who are interested in this topic in regenerative agriculture. And once I had enough names and enough interest um, with Darren, uh, we agreed on bringing some experts to Spain. And uh, the, some of those first experts, one of them was Kurt Gadzia with his wonderful wife, Tamara. And um, we brought Joel Salatin, uh, also uh, Latin American experts like Jairo Restrepo, Nacho Simón. Later on, we worked with Professor Piñero Machado. So we were bringing these expert voices in because often um, to get something kick-started, you kind of need a, a champion. You need a leader, someone who's got the information and can communicate it and move people. And at the same time, at those events, which were a few days long, um, I always made sure that we had spaces and tools to allow people to connect with each other at another level. And I remember one guy who used to come to everything, although he was retired, he came to every event because he said, I really love these events because people leave their medals at the door. We created a space and an ambience that allowed people to just be themselves. Because sometimes, you know, if someone says, hi, I'm John and I'm unemployed, people get an idea in their head of that person. But if you connect from a different space and speak from the heart and listen openly, respectfully and create those spaces, then people start to communicate in a different way. And in the farming community, at least in Spain, in my experience, some people are really shy and, and not, not that prone to speaking in public. And so you have to create, you know, it's very useful to create these spaces where people are given the, the voice and are asked to speak and participate, circles, different activities that allow everyone to have a voice and everyone to be heard. And this creates an atmosphere. It can be done really simply, but it creates an atmosphere where people can really connect. And so those connections then continue over time. It's completely different if you call someone, a farmer that you, you know, that you know and ask them for something or, or ask a question, if you don't know them or if you met them in a kind of, you know, impersonal way, it's completely different if you met them in a way where you connected more deeply. And so there's a connection there that, that's, that, that stays over time. And so when, when that call comes, it's welcome. It's, oh, it's a friend calling, you know? So that was something that, that, we, that, that we really 
worked on, like very consciously creating those spaces and those tools. And then after some time, we realized we needed to have some kind of of institution, organization, because you need to be legally uh, present so that you can go and ask for a council for a space or ask for any any kind of official thing. You need to be an official body. You can't just be a person, you know? So we created the association in 2013, the Association of Regenerative Agriculture in Spain, but it's a very small organization that is purely a tool it's a legal and, and administrative and uh, banking tool that allows us to do stuff. But I feel that the, the movement in Spain is not the association. That's just a tool. The movement is the collective. And it's all those human connections that have been made. And all of those connections lead on to many other things and many other groups springing up and uh, and and all of these wonderful human experiences. And this is something that, uh, and, uh, that over the last couple of years has almost been robbed of us, is these human experiences of meeting together and sharing in presence. And that's something we need to recover. And we need to lose the fear to come together and connect from a human level, because those connections are really, really strong and will take us a long way and they build respect and they build love and care for each other, as Alan was saying. And then the next stage for me, and I'll, I'll run through this quickly, is about those people who, are receive, who were receiving the first trainings. In the first years, it was about training stakeholders, training agents of change. And in the beginning, just a couple of the people in each course would be a farmer, a professional farmer. Over the years, we're seeing how those trainings, more and more uh, farmers are joining. And in the last trainings I've been involved in, in co-organizing, most of them are farmers. So there's that momentum amongst professional farmers where conventional farming doesn't work and organic registered farming is better, definitely, but still doesn't respond to a whole bunch of needs and realities. And so we need to go further. And for me, that's the regenerative vision and the regenerative practice is going further, way beyond. And so it was about adapting. We then had to, we've gone through a process, the farmers have gone through a process of adaptation of those amazing ideas and concepts that those international trainers were bringing to us, but then they need to be adapted locally. Every country is different, the legality is different, the soils are different, the tradition, the customs, the culture, as Alan and Rudolf were both saying, it's like it has to be culturally and locally appropriate. So it's in the hands of the local farmers to adapt those tools and methodologies to their reality. And now, after a few years, we're at a stage where there's a whole set, a whole network of active regenerative farmers in Spain that are pioneers. They were very brave in the beginning. They had, they, they, they had the courage and they had also the friendships and support. And they now have farms that can be visited, can be seen. Uh, we try from the, from the association and other groups, we try to 
help them organize those visits so it's not a trickle of people visiting but they're actually you know again bringing people together to visit a farm in an organized way in a way that's compensating the farmer as well it's a wonderful way as well to motivate the farmers and as Rudolf was saying it's the farmer to farmer conversations that are the most enriching and fertile so that's what we need to really, really promote. So if people are thinking, well, how can I get this going in my region? First of all, I'd say start talking about it and start organizing small events, gatherings. There's so much material now, wonderful documentaries and films that you can use to show a film and then have a conversation about it. You know, and start with that. Connect with your local farmers and be patient because it is, it is, uh, it is a lot of work and it involves a lot of presence as well. So I'll leave it at that for now. Fantastic. Look, we've, we've now covered on some really core and fundamental things to kind of launch the rest of this conversation on with. Rudolph, I want to come back to you and something important that you were saying towards the end of your original statement, which is that it can be difficult to continue with the initial motivations and energy when you're getting a community together. And, you know, many of them make a large initial leap as they first become united based on that early excitement. But how have you found to maintain that momentum in the long term and keep people active and engaged? Well, uh, this is, uh, um, you know, this is, uh, uh, I would say, a subject you should know, you know, I'm working on the grassroots level myself, you know, and uh, rather here in, in, in Hohenlohe, in my home area, as well as in the overseas and project in the south, I'm working always with the, let's say, with the farmers, with the small scale farmers itself. And basically, we should recognize that farmers are the losers, always, rather in the south, same in the north. Farmers are the losers in industrial environments, you know. And uh, same with, uh, if you look on the GMOs and so on, farmers are raped uh, even now with, the, uh, with their, let's say, assets they have developed through centuries is scrapped now by the multinational companies, you know, as Monsanto, Bayer and whatever. So we have to focus on the farmers and the local communities to give them the fair income, the fair share on their products, the fair share along the value chain. You know, you should recognize the richest Germans are the food dealers. And the poor farmers, they have, let's say, they are just surviving. It is, it is I would say, it is uh, all over the world the same. Farmers are the losers. So it means, of course, farmers, uh, are you can motivate them easily. But on the long term, we have to work on these issues that farmers get a fair share for their products. And they should get also, let's say, the benefit for all the side activities they provide, you know, let's say for the environment, for biodiversity and so on. This is not paid through the product. So 
we need to, to get the farmer the fair income. And this is actually uh, my personal struggle since long time uh, that we find solutions for farmers, I call it solidaric business, you know, farmers to join, to take, to take it in their own hands, develop business models which fit to the farmers' communities, and at the end that they can have a fair income. So I think this is, on the long run, one of the most important issues. And uh, fortunately, all the farmers which I'm representing, rather here in, the, in our region, or let's say in Kerala, India, I have to say, we assist them in getting into an organic scheme or even regenerative agriculture schemes. And then we offer them the double price than before through to direct trade, through to solidaric business. And then farmers believe they, that you are on their side and uh, they have hope and trust for the future. So to my experience, this is one of the basic uh, issues on the long term to give farmers opportunity and farmer families future. Yeah, very well said. And Alan, I would imagine that you have a management approach towards maintaining enthusiasm and energy as organizations begin to develop. Can you talk about the staying power that the Savory Institute has helped to initiate in so many different places around the world and how that's developed? Uh, <clears throat> well, again, I, I read this because I, as I keep telling you, I know so many things that don't work. I know that for 65 years of my adult life, since I began studying what we've now learned is the basic cause of the problem, to now I've seen so many things that we're talking about that I cannot disagree with. I, I agree with them uh, completely with what Rudolf's saying, what Anna's saying, uh, but, but the point is, and I think they've both made it, is that you need patience. Uh, like Anna was saying, you know, from 2007 when she started working with some of the people in Regen. Well, that's 14 years ago. Uh, what percentage of the population, did, even in your Iberian area, uh, did you represent then? And how many do you represent now? You see, it's almost none. That's why that approach we know from history and science and published papers, that will take two to 300 years till it becomes policy, okay, with, at which we manage by scale. I don't think young people have got that time right now. When, uh, and Anna said you need to shift the view and then the methodology. I've come to the conclusion after 65 years of trying to first understand, then find a way to solve the problem, and then to shift the view, I've come to understand that actually, if you do it the other way around, it's far quicker. If you shift the methodology, the view just follows once you address the cause of the problem. And you see, so everything we're discussing, and, and I'm not disagreeing with it, I'm not, not being disagreeable. I, as I said, I agree with everything Rudolf and Anna are saying, um, but 
none of what they're saying is addressing the cause of the problem. So if you keep talking about the symptoms of a problem and what you need to address the symptoms, we know that will take centuries. So I'm saying, why don't we go for the jugular? Why don't we go directly to the cause of the problem? And, and uh, both of, all of us are admitting the cause of the problem is at a higher level. It's not at the grassroots. As I said in my talk at, at COP, we can't cure this at the grassroots. Um, you know, uh, as Rudolf said so rightly, farmers are the losers every time. They have been throughout history. Uh, but ultimately, agricultural policies destroy civilizations, and then farmers continue to sustain themselves, but we abandon the cities. We can't afford to do that again. So um, I would just be repeating here what I said in that short talk that, that I sent you, that I think if we just address the cause of it directly, you'll find the thinking follows. Now, let me give you an example so that I'm not just saying that. Um, in 80 to 84, uh, before I started training people like Kirk, who visited you, uh, and in that period, the USDA commissioned me to put 2,000 scientists, World Bank economists, professors of universities, agricultural colleges, through training on the holistic framework I was developing. Now, never before have we had 2,000 scientists for two years concentrating on the cause of the problem. And we broke through. And they brought hundreds of their own policies, the bureaucrats did, to the training. They analyzed their policies with the new framework. And they, not me, concluded every single one of their policies was unsound. They said it was universal. Then we found that in India, in Africa, etc. So we then learned in 83, 1983, which is again a long time ago, that we could address that. So that's what I'm suggesting we do. Now we got a chance to do it with very divergent people at the, at the policy level. That's why farmers suffer and everything else. And we did that a few years ago and I wrote about it in the third edition of my textbook with 35 members of parliament, the actual lawmakers in Zimbabwe. Now those were two political parties uh, making Republicans and uh, Democrats in America looked like friendly children playing in the playpen. I mean, they were killing each other. And people appealed to me not to even talk about agriculture and land because it would lead to violence. And so I didn't. I just talked to them about how governments develop policies, whether they're dictatorships or anything else, how the European Union develops policies, how Spain does, every country. And it's the same. And then I talked about a different way of doing so. And I said, but we cannot have governments continue to develop policies based on needs and desires and problems a country or a region has, and then base the policy on politicians trying to juggle the conflicting views of agricultural experts and economic experts and pressure groups and so on, and the politicians trying to find their way through that and come up with a policy because always the biggest voice wins, the corporations win, the farmers lose, the country loses. Agriculture is the most destructive industry in the world today as a result of that. So I said, why don't we just do it a different way that we've learned how? And that is we first develop a context. We don't talk about the problem. 
Don't allow anybody to discuss the problem, the state of the land or anything, because those are symptoms of present policies. So we just start by saying, what do all people want? And almost everybody you talk to in the world, whether they're a CEO of a corporation or a farmer or a pastoralist, I guarantee they want better lives, cleaner food, cleaner water, freedom to pursue their own spiritual and religious values, better education. They all want the same thing. And then if you describe their behavior as it will have to be for humans to be ethical to each other and to the environment without which we can't be ethical. And when we describe that behavior, and then when we describe what Spain or Portugal or whatever country will have to be two or 300 years from now, how will the water cycle have to function? How will the energy flow through all biological communities have to function? And total agreement, no compromise allowed. Once we had that total agreement, we no longer had 35 members of parliament fighting each other. We suddenly had 35 Zimbabweans trying to solve a problem. And within a day, we had the nucleus of a policy the world prays for. Every bit of knowledge we needed was in the room. We're not in trouble today with agriculture causing all the problems it is, desertification, megafires, spiraling out of control because of a lack of agricultural knowledge. We're not here because of a lack of scientific knowledge. We're only in this way because of the way that all governments develop policies. So if you attack it at that point, suddenly everybody realizes, oh my God, we all wanted the same thing. Let's get it. Mm. And I've had angry people in America swearing at me, using filthy language, telling me it's impossible to have an agreement in their community. And I haven't tried to shift their view and get them to be friendly and change their opinion or anything. I just said, will you work with me for an hour and prove me wrong? And they agreed to work with me an hour and prove me wrong instead of telling me I'm wrong. And an hour later, they were in total agreement because I avoided all of this and went straight for the jugular and effectively said, how do you all want your lives to be? Yeah, that's amazing. Those are great examples of uniting over the things that we have in common. And yeah. I'm sure all of the community organizers we have here can, can represent that and, and connect with it too. Now, Anna, what has been your experience in helping to maintain the excitement and motivation from initial collaboration and unification in this patient path that you've mentioned earlier? Well, that's, that's such, a, such a big question. I'm fascinated by everything that Alan has just shared. And I really wish that, that we had the ears and the attention of political leaders who do have the power to change those policies. I often say, you know, just give me half an hour with, <laughs> with, with whoever's deciding this, because if we can talk about, like Alan says, what makes us happy? What do you want for your kids? You know, the reality of what's happening, it's not about dwelling in, 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 in the terribleness of it all, because, you know, that's easily done and it's very paralyzing. It's about, so how do we want to live exactly? And there's 
the, the good news is I often say in my talks, you know, it's all woes and terrible things with climate and with agriculture and everything, but actually I'm a bearer of good news is that we can do things differently. You really can. And it's in our hands to do that. And what I hear from farmers is that the biggest difficulty, the biggest barrier that they have when they want to make those changes is actually the legal framework. It's the policies. And they seem, you know, we've had a, a few proposals recently here in Spain of policies that affect farmers that are like, who is writing these things, you know? And why aren't these kinds of conversations happening with those kinds of people? You know, with, because we're all human, we're all on this planet. So surely if we could have these conversations, you know, we could advance so much more. Um, so from my very humble position, uh, which is a very small group and trying to, 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 to feed and inform and encourage and apply all of these uh, ways of, 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 of promoting life and a healthy ecosystem and a productive ecosystem for people. Well, from this position, I think it's very much about creating those spaces where people can connect with each other And those spaces now with online tools and virtual tools, there's a lot more possibility to communicate, but then there's also that other danger of too much information, you know, just too much going on. And so I keep coming back to helping and supporting farmers who are making those changes and having those farms be places that can be showcases. And so, for example, next week, we were going to a farm and having a small visit to one of these farms with someone who is in a political position. And we hope to show them, uh, you know, on the farm and to then enjoy the products of the farm so that the person can see the whole process and can see the family that is growing this and can sit at the table with the family and eat. And those kinds of experiences and conversations that can happen there, we hope can, 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 can help open that possibility of changing things. However, I feel, you know, we're, we're, we're in a very humble position where I wish we had access to really high level government people such as Alan has had in the past. And for example, in the last year and a half, I've part I participated in a group of experts that called from Europe, from 15 countries in Europe, to talk about sustainable beef production in Europe. And so we were all talking about holistic management, plant grazing, regenerative methodologies. It was really encouraging to see that in all of these 15 countries, there's people doing it. And there's champions who are key people who maybe some of them are farmers some of them are not farmers they're supporting farmers but there's these key people who are pushing and who are, who are who are promoting this in all of these countries so we're not alone but we were asked to give a report and when we gave the report back after a lot of work for a whole year during covid that report is actually is actually sitting in a drawer somewhere so it's like you know the the Tools of the
they don't prove it. How do we get to that level? If anyone has that key, I'd be really grateful for that. Well, Alan's got his hand up, so I yeah, think he wants to jump please. in there. Go ahead, Alan. I, I couldn't resist. Anna, you, you know, again, so I love what you're saying and everything. And you said you wish we had the access to those political leaders. You do have the access, only you limiting yourself. So instead of spending, well, no, spend time with farmers showing what can be done, et cetera, but that's going to take years. Why not just take a delegation of farmers to see your president and say, why don't we carry on government as usual, carry on policies as usual, but concurrently, let us just work with a group of our people and show what can be developed in the way of a different policy. And if you like it, adopt it. I mean, there's nothing to stop you doing that within one week. That is a fabulous idea, Alan. I'm taking note of that. <laughs> Definitely. That's great. I'm really hoping that these but panels see, will lead into revolutions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I do see a comment there, a comment there in the chat, which I have to uh, agree with, which is about um, how people in those management and political levels are. On the one hand, some of them are very much high, as that person is saying, high on the psychopathic scale, and they're in positions of power, and this is a reality. And then there's people who are genuinely trying to change things. And I've got personal friends who are great activists and super motivated, who've gone into, into politics to change, really change things. And they find themselves either completely absorbed by the machine of paperwork, stuff, uh, you know, processes and all of that. And they just fall down that rabbit hole or they leave in despair, you know? And so it's like the good people don't get to to really, really make those changes. So yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge, huge. Back Fantastic. to you, Oliver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, so let's, let's put a little comma on that right now. There are a couple of people here who have been patiently waiting to ask their questions and I would love to hand it over to our listeners. So first we have Alex. All right, there you have it, everyone. Now, as great as it is to include multiple experience perspectives on the topics that we covered in this panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in their daily lives. Now, it'll always be free to join. All you have to do is follow the links to our Discord on the homepage of the Regenerative Skills website, as well as our Instagram account. And the benefit of joining through our Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms just to sell you more junk, I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between the people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. Now this week's question, which we'll be discussing on the forum is, how have you observed the evolution of rural communities during your lifetime? What unique concerns and priorities do farmers and their communities require that differ from urban areas? And what can those of us do who don't live in the countryside to support the rural communities that we depend on and value? Now, I've worked in a wide variety of communities from isolated rural areas to inner cities and many aspects of the spectrum in between. And I've always tended to feel more comfortable and more at home in small country communities. Yet in most regions, these towns are in severe decline due to a number of factors from mechanized farm work to large companies out-competing local businesses. 
There are so many opportunities though for the right type of person to have a tremendously positive impact on a small rural town. And this topic precisely will be a large focus of the next season of this podcast. And I'll I'll explain more about that later. So don't forget, you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've got planned for the future by suggesting topics and guests on the Discord forum as well. Now that's our show for this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.